We're doing this short series on some of Jesus' parables, and uh, this is the one at the start of Matthew 22. Jesus said, the kingdom of heaven can be illustrated by the story of a king who prepared a great wedding feast for his son. When the banquet was ready, he sent his servants to notify those who were invited, but they all refused to come. So he sent other servants to tell them, the feast has been prepared, the bulls and fattened cattle have been killed, and everything is ready. Come to the banquet. But the guests he's invited ignored them and went about their own way, their own business, one to his farm, one to his other business. Others even seized his messengers and insulted them and killed them. The king was furious and he sent out his army to destroy the murderers and to burn their town. He said to his servants, the wedding feast is ready and the guests I invited aren't worthy of the honor. Now go out to the street corners and invite everyone you see. So the servants brought in everyone they could find, good and bad alike. And the banquet hall was filled with guests. But when the king came in to meet the guests, he noticed a man who wasn't wearing the proper clothes for a wedding. Friend, he asked, how is it that you're here without wedding clothes? But the man had no reply. Then the king said to his aides, bind his hands and feet and throw him into the outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are called, but few are chosen. Lord, we thank you for that parable that you told. We thank you for your word. And we pray that you'll speak it afresh into our hearts now by Sarah. We pray for your blessing and anointing on her. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Thank you. Thank you. Good morning, everybody. Um, I have a presentation, if that's all right. Perfect. It's just the passage. I'm just putting it up on the board. So I think I'm week four or five of Difficult Parables. That's the series. Um, which is a little daunting because they're not easy. But it's an opportunity to think about the gospel, just the gospel, because that's what the parables are about, which is a real privilege as well. Um, So I'm very grateful. Um, But because it is a difficult parable, it's easiest, I think, to go through it quite systematically. So that's what what I'm going to do. So roughly, just to help, so everyone has it in, in their mind. So I've kind of split it into two. The first is verses 1 to 7, and it's, I've given it the title, Don't Shoot the Messenger, just so you kind of like know that's the first half. The second half is about the banquet, and I'm gonna, I'll kind of break that down into a little bit. So that's just, just roughly where you know where we're going. So if you know, just the first slide. So that's, this is Matthew 1 to 7. I might just read it again. Sorry, I know, Nigel, you, you read it, but I'm going to read it also. Um, and this is, I think my version's maybe a little different. So... The parable of the wedding banquet. Jesus spoke to them again in parables saying, the kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. He sent his servants to those who had been invited to the banquet to tell them to come, but they refused to come. Then he sent some more servants and said, tell those who've been invited that I have prepared my dinner. My oxen and fattened calf have been butchered and everything is ready. Come to the wedding banquet. But they paid no attention and went off, one to his field, another to his business. The rest seized his servants, 
mistreated them and killed them. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. So there's a lot in that. So we're going to break it down. I want to start with the beginning. The kingdom of heaven is like a king who prepared a wedding banquet for his son. This is the king preparing a feast for his son. This is a grand and lovely gesture. And we don't, it's hard to picture this. We don't have many examples of these sorts of gestures in modern society. And even in literature, we don't have that many examples. Probably the closest we have in literature are, are the likes of fairy tales, Cinderella, all the citizens come to the banquet. This is meant to be quite an exciting, kind, generous gesture. I don't think we have any suggestion to think otherwise, then this is a good thing. So what happens? The invitation of the king is refused, which could be interpreted, I think it interprets as, by refusing that invitation, those who are invited are rejecting the good intentions of the king. But I want to focus on how this happens, and this is going to be, this is why I've named this Don't Shoot the Messenger. How does this happen? The king sends his messengers to tell the guests, and they refuse. So he sends his messengers again. Reason I want to emphasize this, I think this is significant, is because of the audience. Who's the audience of this parable? So in Matthew 21, the chapter before, Jesus has come to the temple in Jerusalem. And he's speaking to a crowd and he's speaking to the Pharisees. The Pharisees are the Jewish scholars. Um, and and they, he, they are, they're having this discussion. Jesus tells one of three parables and this is one of them. That's the, and the audience are the, are the Pharisees. And I think that, that's really, really significant because his audience would have been probably quite shocked or at least it would have impacted them hearing this story about the messengers. Why is that? There are a number of Old Testament stories of not recognizing who a messenger is and what they represent. And I just want to have a look at some of those now. I've got two examples here. And just thinking, just in the mindset of the wider narrative... These are the Jewish scholars who would have known the, the rich history of, the, of, of Jewish history throughout the whole of the Old Testament going into Jesus, Jesus then. So just, just to have that kind of long mindset in mind. So First Chronicles 19. This is one example of way messengers were treated in the Old Testament. This is, um, I don't really need to give much um, context, I don't think, because it's quite a powerful story in its own right. David defeats the Ammonites. This is about King David. In the course of time, Nahash, king of the Ammonites, died, and his son succeeded him as king. David thought, I will show kindness to Hanan, son of Nahash, because his father showed kindness to me. So David sent a delegation to express his sympathy to Hanan concerning his father. 
When David's envoys, David's messengers, came to Hanan in the land of the Ammonites to express sympathy to him, the Ammonite commander said to Hanan, do you think David is honoring your father by sending envoys to you to express sympathy? Haven't his envoys come to you only to explore and spy out the country and overthrow it? So Hanan seized David's envoys, shaved them, cut off their garments at the buttocks, and sent them away. When someone came and told David about the men, he sent messengers to meet them, for they were greatly humiliated, as you can imagine. The king said, stay at Jericho till your beards have grown, then come back. I mean, if that's not a story of misunderstanding the, in, the intentions of the messengers, I, I almost don't know what is. But we're gonna look, let's look at another one, because I think that's probably the key message. 2 Chronicles 36. This is the last book in Chronicles. And just for some context, Judah has had a number of kings, and they haven't been obedient to God And this is what it says in the bit of the fall of Jerusalem. The Lord, the God of their ancestors, of the the kings, sent word to them through his messengers again and again because he, God, had pity on his people and on his dwelling place. But they mocked God's messengers, despised his words, and scoffed at his prophets until the wrath of God was aroused against his people And there was no remedy. So I think this is different from the last example. Because in the last example, you could say that the messengers of David, their intention was misunderstood, whether whether intentionally or not. It was a misunderstood message. This is different. The prophets are saying, well, what's, what's being said here by the kings is that we hear your message. We just reject it. We refuse to accept it. So why, why does all of this matter, I guess? Why, why does this context, this sort of Old Testament context leading up to Jesus' parable, why does any of it matter? And I think it matters because of, as I said, um, why Jesus is telling this, or who Jesus is telling this story to. We know it's to the Pharisees, but there's something particularly that Jesus is telling this of the three parables in response to, and it's a question posed to him Matthew 21, 23, Jesus entered the temple courts and while he was teaching, the chief priests and elders of the people came to him. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? I might just say those again. By what authority are you doing these things? They asked. And who gave you this authority? A messenger, like the messages we've read about, is a person who comes in the authority of the person they represent. And in this, the Pharisees are rejecting Jesus' authority. So if we put, the, put them together, what, what conclusion? Why is this significant? What, what is it the Pharisees are saying It matters because the Pharisees knew what Jesus was claiming. Two things. 
that Jesus had the full authority of the father he represents as a messenger because he's the son of the father. But even more than that, as it says at the beginning of John, the word became flesh. Jesus is the greatest messenger of all because he is the message. It's not that he's just the greatest deliverer of the good news. He is the good news. He is the message. He embodies the message. That's what makes him the greatest messenger of all, because he is it. See, messengers come in the authority they represent. But by saying to Jesus, we reject your authority, what are they saying? They're saying, we'll never accept you. Because Old Testament history has said there's been a history of misunderstanding messengers. There's been a history of hearing a message, a good message, but just rejecting it. But Jesus is now the message. So the history's gone one step further. They're saying, we reject you. You are the message. We don't want you. And of course, this is what leads to the crucifixion of Jesus. And I want to, because I'm trying to do this systematically, focus on the rather difficult line of Matthew 22, 7. The king was enraged. He sent his army and destroyed those murderers and burnt their city. That's quite hard hitting, I guess. But I suppose to the audience of the Pharisees, they had seen this. David, he didn't actually, in the end, kill the Ammonites because they, they fled, but that was the intention. He sent his army. So in terms of a context, it's a context maybe we, we miss. But I, I do think yeah, the context is obviously important. But I just want to, I, I mean, it's difficult. And there are a number of things that I'm not going to be able to explain that well because they're just difficult. But I, just, just maybe something I want us to perhaps meditate on is the fact that the father's son, the messenger, was crucified. And as we saw in that first story, when David's messengers were humiliated, he was angry. He was, at, he was angry. And often I find that when we think about Jesus dying on the cross, we, we can sometimes think about Jesus' mindset a lot. We often hear that in church about how Jesus felt as he was going to Calvary, what, what his mindset was. But Something maybe I haven't thought about really until reading this is, what did the father think? Was he angry? Probably. It was his son, his messenger, who was crucified. Just something to think about at least. But we'll move on to the second part of this parable because I think that the first part might understanding of it is more that it points to the crucifixion to the first part of the gospel of Jesus dying but the second part I think points more to the resurrection and that is the gospel isn't it the death of Jesus and the new life of Jesus so let's move on to this so And there's two, as we think about this, there's sort of two questions I'd like us to consider. 
how do we respond to the king's invitation, the invitation that's there? And maybe this is a slightly strange way of phrasing it, but how much of the generous offer do we take? So let me read Matthew. This is a part, so the banquet, my second part, I've split into three different sections. So this is the first part, the banquet part one. So go to the street corners and invite to the banquet anyone you find. So the servants went out into the streets and gathered all the people they could find, the bad as well as the good, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. The king looks elsewhere and finds other people to be generous to. And I think that's the first of the resurrection life that Jesus um, offers us. I think that's, that's something really we should just remember, that this is, a gener- this is a king being generous, and he'll find, other people to be ge- find others to be generous to. This is an invitation to all. And in the same way, the king wasn't discouraged by people refusing his invitation. Neither, sh- neither should we be. Um, Matthew ten fourteen says, if anyone, w- this is Jesus, Jesus talking again, says, if anyone will not welcome you or listen to your words, leave that home or town and shake the dust off your feet. I just think that's, that's just, the king was the king, but it didn't stop him. He, he, he had his banquet still. The banquet continued. He didn't, he couldn't be humiliated. He, he had it, and we shouldn't be discouraged either to find other people to be generous to with the good news of the banquet. But secondly, just as the last point in that passage, it says, and the wedding hall was filled with guests. And again, I just want to, maybe just in terms of context and of this passage, just how significant this is and what Jesus was doing. And sometimes, again, I think the context, it's so hard to understand how radical Jesus was being until we look at what was going on at the time. So Jesus had, Jesus came to be, well, the Messiah of of Israel, of the Jews, but Jesus had already extended his good news to the Gentiles, way before we have mention of it in Acts, later with Peter's vision, um, Jesus had already been doing it. In Matthew 8, Jesus engaged with the centurion, the Roman centurion, who was not a Jew, not a Jew, and, Jesus, and his servant was very sick, and Jesus applauded him for his faith and said, I will heal your servant. And he was healed. But what's so significant is he wasn't a Jew at all. Jesus had already extended that invitation to, to everyone way before we have it articulated later on, even with the Canaanite woman. I, I really love this story. In Matthew 15, a woman, again, not a Jew, whose daughter was possessed by a demon And this is what it says, Jesus, he answered, I was sent only to the lost sheep of Israel, the Jews. The woman came and knelt before him. Lord, help me, she said. He replied, 
It is not right to take the children's bread and toss it to the dogs, i.e. the blessing that's for the Jews. Yes, it is, Lord, she said. Even the dogs eat the crumbs that fall from their master's table. Then Jesus said to her, woman, you have great faith. Your request is granted. And her daughter was healed at that moment. Just, I just think it's amazing. Jesus was being so radical. And to the audience that he was speaking to, they didn't want his message full stop, let alone to be anyone other than the people of Israel. But Jesus had already extended it. And that's what this banquet is. It's the invitation to everyone. And Jesus was demonstrating that in his life and something we should hold on to. And finally, part three of the banquet. This is very difficult, I found, so I'm going to just read it. But when the king came in to see the guests, he noticed a man there who was not wearing wedding clothes. He asked, how did you get in here without wedding clothes, friend? The man was speechless. The king told his attendants, tie him hand and foot and throw him outside into the darkness where there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. For many are invited, but few are chosen. So this is, I mean, this is difficult. Um, <laughs> but what, what do we know about this? Try and break it down. What we do know is that this can't actually be about clothing. Well, maybe let me rephrase it. It can't actually be about optics, what's presented. It can't be. We know it can't be. How do we know it can't be? Because, as I said, this is one of three parables that had come to Jesus' response. There's a parable before, the parable of the two sons in Matthew 21, 31. Jesus says to the Pharisees, truly I tell you, the tax collectors and the prostitutes are entering the kingdom of heaven ahead of you. Now the Pharisees, if, we're, if you're having a wedding banquet, kingdom of heaven, the Pharisees are the people who are most likely to be dressed appropriately. And Jesus is saying, you're, not, you're going to be the last to get the invite. So it can't be about image. It can't be about that. But clothing, clothing we think of clo- clothing is about Im- image, what we look like. So, so if it's not about that... What, what is it? What does it represent? So in order to illustrate this, I want to just, just pose a question to you. So my work, I go to work in an office, and my dress code is smart casual, tipping into smart. And I, in order to visually demonstrate it, I've worn something that I have worn to the office, so you all remember. This is sort of smart casual, tipping into smart, I, I think. You might challenge me later. Um, <laughs> but when I go to work and I put on my blue sporty top and my white shorts, shorts? trousers, <laughs> who am I dressing for? venue 
the location. Yeah, the office. My status. My boss. The company, the policy. Clients, clients. But it's sort of smart, casual. It's a cryptic phrase, isn't it? It's one of those things that doesn't really mean much. Am I not dressing a bit for me as well? I like this top. You may not, but I do. (laughs) It's a bit of both is the answer. I dress a bit for my employer, my setting, and I dress a bit for me. Okay, so let's, let's think about it in a wedding context. When you go to a wedding, who are you dressing for? Yourself, do you think? Anyone agree? The photos. Dress to impress. Respectfully, the bridegroom is kind of the answer I was looking for. Uh, okay, in reality, there are a number of motivations. But you, why, are you wear, why do you dress up more appropriately, like more smart, like smartly? Why do you do it for a wedding? Okay, it makes you feel good. It does, all of these things are right, but, but it's also the occasion is different, isn't it? You have the occasion in mind. You have the couple in mind. Yeah, okay, you might have yourself in mind as well. But let's say in terms of work or in terms of maybe your you know, day-to-day, the weekend, so let's say, in those sorts of events, at the wedding event, you are more tipping into the frame of, You're thinking about the couple. You're thinking about the wedding. You're thinking about the occasion. So clothing, I think, helps answer the question sometimes. Who do you have in mind? And this is a strong message Jesus is telling. And this person who was coming to the wedding was a friend but what I think is being suggested here is that the friend didn't have them in mind the king the wedding he wasn't thinking of them and I think the challenge of this parable is that the invitation isn't the end continually Are we clothing our hearts, perhaps, in a way that keeps Christ in mind? What does this mean? Because that's quite a big statement. What what does it mean? I think that Colossians 3, which I'm going to read, helps us unpack that concept of clothing the heart, having someone else, something, something else in mind. So let, let me read Colossians 3. It's 8 to 12. And it's the bit, it's living as those made alive in Christ. But now you must also rid yourselves of all such things as these, anger, rage, malice, slander, and filthy language from your lips. Don't lie to each other since you have taken off clothing, your old selves with its practices, and have put on the new self, which is being renewed in the knowledge and the image of its creator. Here there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. 
Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. What we know in conclusion of that point, what, whatever, or I, I like to look at, I think that the, the passage that sums it up is the widow's might or the widow's offering. You might know it. I'm going to just read it. As Jesus looked up, he saw the rich putting their gifts into the temple treasury. He also saw a poor widow put in two very small copper coins. Truly, I tell you, he said, this poor widow has put in more than all the others. All these people gave their gifts out of their wealth, but she, out of her poverty, put in all that she had to live on. Being clothed for the feast hasn't got anything to do with what we look like. I think that's what this passage says. It's everything to do with the heart, everything to do with our heart. I just want to go back to the question I posed at the beginning of this part, sort of how much of the generous offer do we have to take? Because it's a bit of a weird question. I think that the invite to the wedding feast of the kingdom of heaven, because that's what this is about, is so generous that it's something that keeps giving in that the more we can clothe ourselves and clothe our hearts in that of the kingdom of heaven, the more of that offer we are able to take. It's there for us. It's there for us. We can continually have even more of it as we go through our lives and go through on our journey with faith. So I think that's the good news of this parable. I suppose the challenge is, to look at our hearts and to, to say that are we taking as much of this offer as we can? Can we be taking even more? Because it's theirs for us to take. So just to finish, because Jesus said basically everything I've said in a few lines, I just want to finish off by reading a section from John 14, which I think sums up, sums up mostly what this is saying. So, um, and then I'll, then I'll finish there. So Jesus, the way to the Father. Thomas said to him, Lord, we don't know where you are going, so how can we know the way? And Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father, and that will be enough for us. And Jesus answered, Don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? This is the main point. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority. Rather, 
It is the Father living in me who is doing his work. Believe me when I say that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Or at least believe on the evidence of the works themselves. Very truly I tell you, whoever believes in me will do the works I've been doing and they will do even greater things than these because I am going to the Father and I will do whatever you ask in my name so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. You may ask me for anything in my name and I will do it. Thank you, Sarah. Let's just pause and spend a moment in prayer as we process what God's said to us this morning. Lord, we thank you that you're a great king. We thank you that you're a God with a very generous heart. We thank you for your rich provision for us. Thank you for the privilege of being invited to the banquet. We thank you that you're inviting us into a place of joy and of celebration and of goodness. Lord, we thank you that you have extended your invitation. And Lord, we're sorry if at times we've rejected you and walked away and been too busy. Lord, help us to embrace that invitation and delight in spending time in your presence at your feast. And Lord Jesus, thank you that you made the way for us by your great sacrifice on the cross and you went naked to crucifixion. And Lord, you've done that to cleanse us, to get rid of our dirty rags and to clothe us in robes of righteousness so we can hold our heads high as guests at your banquet. Lord, help us to appreciate it ourselves, help us to clothe our hearts and help us to join the team and be your servants that make other people aware of your invitation. Thank you, Lord. Amen.